Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Learning Grounds. I'm Zach Chase, and in this conversation, I got to talk with Stephen Moore of Kansas City, Missouri. Stephen's a classroom teacher who works with middle school language arts students, as well as a PhD student in an education leadership program. We got to talk about different kinds of communication and ways of thinking about communication in school systems, as well as the, the kind of quiet or non-existent conversation about rural schools and, and what are called by you know the sides of the country, the flyover states. Both Steve and I are Midwesterners, and so we know a little bit about that. Really great conversation. Steve's a great guy. If you're ever in Kansas City, Missouri, you should just look him up. Really. just He brought me coffee the first time we met. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Learning Grounds. Stephen J. Moore, how are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Thanks for uh, setting some time aside to drink some coffee. That's wonderful. I hope it's not too loud in the mic when I start slurping on this on this coffee. But I think it just brings warm. an air of uh, authenticity to the whole podcast. <laughs> oh, they really like are that. drinking. It's like I'm there with them. <laughs> um, so, for the sake of posterity, uh, who are you, and what is it you do? Uh, my name is Steve Moore, and I teach middle school writing and the independent school district, which is just outside of Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm also a PhD student at University of Missouri, Kansas City. That pretty much sums you up. Um, <laughs> what have you been learning lately? Oh, you know, it, I've been learning a lot, and uh, sometimes that can be painful. <laughs> the more you learn, the uh, the more stress you're under, and the more, uh, I guess, challenge you get to experience. And uh, that, that's how I like to be, I think. Um, there's just, uh, there's a lot in my school life and my teaching life and my personal life. And, uh, it's always, it's always exciting to have a lot to be learning. What are you, what are you focusing on in your, uh, PhD program? Right now I'm talking a lot about, um, communication within, um, within the school environment and how school leaders, um, whether they're teacher leaders or, or principals or administrators of some other, uh, brand can, uh, can really foster effective communication and use that as a, um, I mean, a channel for, for more learning for everyone in the building. And I think that's a key, a key struggle that schools go through, uh, whether they're a high achieving school or uh, one that's really struggling or somewhere in between all schools deal with the challenge of consistent and clear communication, uh, whether that's interpersonal or electronic. Um, I mean, how the water cooler dif uh, is different from uh, a staff meeting or, or the channels that get used in, in email, on and off school grounds. There's just so many things that go into school communication and I think that that's, um, that's an area that needs to be explored and talked about much, much more than it currently is. Now, so you might not have the answer to this, but a question that pops into my head as you're talking is, is that related? Can you, t can you trace that to one individual? Because in my brain, it would be, oh, here's the principal of the school and kind of, or whoever is responsible for the most kind of direct communications or modeling communications within the system. Um, is, is that what you're finding or is there, is there no evidence of that? Is it is a group effort? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's ultimately it is a group effort, but there is somebody responsible for setting the tone and for, like you said, modeling and really showing the way as uh, an effective communicator and as an active one 
uh, who you know makes changes and, and modifies the way that the, the school information channels function, whether that's through redefining those channels, uh, you know, naming ones that haven't been named that you know we don't you know that are kind of hidden, you know, mm -hmm. um, maybe the, the principal can't be in the same places as as where the important information is being exchanged, but they can uh, validate those uh, in a staff meeting and say, uh, you know, I'm so I'm so glad to hear that this this teacher is bringing up these great uh, topics during, you know, lunchroom chats uh, or during individual parent phone calls. But wherever those uh, important messages are being carried and living, uh, the, the principal has the job, the head principal, uh, has the job of really calling attention to them um, and making them making them known. Because if, if he or she doesn't do that, then they just kind of get left to chance. And, and sure, there are definitely lots of teacher leaders in the building and, and other people who run professional development who who influence what kind of channels get used, but I think it is ultimately the the head principal who whose job it is to really establish them, name them, and make them a part of that. Um, I mean, the structure of the school. How do you, how would you say the teachers in the school can can take on that responsibility though? I mean, the the shoulders of a principal are only so big. So how how would you say? All right, if you want to help reinforce these positive forms of of communication, here are some things you can do. I think going, I mean, for me, my, my brain goes to department by department, and I think about how I, I talk with my department head in writing um, in my school. There's about six of us in our department, um, and we, the way that we kind of communicate amongst ourselves, that's our unit. With some schools, it would be, you know, a, a grade level or a content area or a collection of teachers on a team. Um, but, but for me, I think it begins with those, whatever one degree above an individual teacher is, whatever that unit is in your school, I think that's where a lot of that um, communication can be identified and the way that you pass on and describe what you're teaching and how you're teaching it can really be hacked into uh, by, by school level leaders, whether they're uh, teachers or, or, or anyone else. And so starting there and getting people to talk about, you know, how do you run your meetings? How do you communicate with your neighbors? What kind of mail do you send to one another? Uh, what's the tone of those messages look like? Um, you know, do you explain things uh, in bolded lists or through through anecdotes? Do you send paper copies of things? Do videos? Um, really, just identifying first uh, how those um, how those messages get get carried around within the smaller uh, subgroups of a school. So, is there a place for like forwards of funny pictures of cats in that and? <laughs> is there a lot of research on that cat picture forwards in schools? I don't know how much research there is on it. I'm going to find out. There's definitely. your dissertation. You're welcome, sir. <laughs> cat it's forwards gonna, in public schools. It's going to start with everyone's father-in-law. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that is exactly it. In my case, it would be my grandfather. Um, but I would imagine that that's kind of a piece of it too, right? Is like not only are you writing these things that are related to school, but like the exchange of recipes. I know was something that happened pretty frequently. Oh yeah, we do a like a casserole competition um, every time we parent-teacher competition. We do you know a chili cook-off or something, and we we do a little voting on it. But then there's always the chain of you know send me that that recipe and send me the, the way you made that and what what it's called and where I can trap for the ingredients. And I think though those little I mean social bites of information are are just as valuable and vital to uh, cultivating you know a meaningful community. As what are you doing with this troublesome student, or right. how are you going to enter this contest? Well, it's it's um, 
it makes me think of the Dewey piece on moving from a great society to a great community. Um, and I know that he was talking about a much larger society, but those little pieces of, of finding connections with individuals as being so key to, to creating some sort of community within a school that is, that is healthy and, and productive. Uh, yeah, and I think you can extend beyond that and just say that friendship is really uh, a critical part of, of how a school functions. And you need to know, you know what, what people are, are isolated and, and find a way to connect them personally, you know, me as a teacher, I look for those people in my building who's who's being shut out, who's not listened to, who's struggling, who's getting talked about, you know. And boy, that person is really challenging. You know, like I get I get frustrated whenever I talk to this person, and, and I really try and I use those cues for myself to say, like, okay, I need to pay more attention to that person, and I need to make sure that I stand up for them in the next next time we're standing in the hall together or somewhere, and and, and really validate them. And I think it's those little moments that make the whole of the school and, and the staff seem more cohesive. And so we allow people to become marginalized. I mean, there's, there's a level of consciousness though, that, that, that takes an awareness that I, I could hear people say, well, I, I have to take care of 150 kids in this day. I don't know right. that I have time to think about who's marginalized in the staff meeting. Like how do you, our own that's, that's difficult. Reevaluating. It's really hard. It's, it's painful. Okay, I'm glad we're on the same page on that. <laughs> I just think about there's, I mean, there's there's people in my uh, staff, people I know, and you know, we we go out for casual, you know, uh, lunches every now and then, or uh, casual. I mean, like we'll go out for chips and salsa and, and drinks, uh, you know, on a Thursday or something, and just get get whoever's going to go and name people. And there's always kind of a weird social uh, jockeying for. Who do we invite? How do we put this out there? Do we just email the whole staff? Do we call on a few friends? And, you know, it's kind of like that, I mean, middle school lunchroom type behavior and positioning, but it still exists in the adult world. And it's still, I mean, just as important to to measure that outright and to have an atmosphere where you are making it available to people, making that social benefit that you're getting from your friends available to, to everyone on the staff. That's tough to it's tough to do. I'm gonna switch gears for a second. You're teaching English, you're teaching students English, and you are a PhD student. Um, that sounds easy. Is it yeah. super easy? Uh, it's it's uh, yeah. I just um, I don't I don't sleep. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, oh my goodness. And I knew it would be challenging whenever I signed up for it. In you know the crazy moments that I had applying. And and going through all the conversations in my head, and with my wife and everything about is this really okay? <laughs> um, and with my colleagues too, you know, am I am I crazy to do this? You know. And I'm where gonna... are you now? I mean, you're a semester and a quarter in, right? Is that are we on the same timeline? Oops, sorry, you're uh, you're cutting out a little bit on me. Back oh, up. No. Uh, what about now? Can you hear me now? This is fun. Okay. One more time. <laughs> um, you, so you're a year and a quarter in, or a semester and a quarter in on your program. Right decision, wrong decision? Too early to tell? Okay, I think I got the short of my cord figured out. Okay. Uh, yeah, about yeah, a year, well, not quite a year in. You know, I had one semester out of my belt and a little bit of this one. And I think definitely right decision because it's making me uh, a much more 
um, attentive and curious teacher. And, and that's what I liked about when I did my master's while I was teaching. It was my first year teaching, and I decided to continue my education and start a master's right away after I graduated because I thought, I said to myself, I'm still in the habit of going to school. And I just felt like my student teaching experience taught me that being being a lifelong learner was about kind of keeping those habits alive and keeping this the habit of study and, and introspection and reflection um, a really active part of my teaching life as well as it was when I was only a student. Um, and student teaching is kind of where that all culminated for me. You know, I, I kept a journal, I started a blog, and I kept it every week about my teaching. And it wouldn't have been the same if I didn't have the 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 chance to talk with my peers at school, uh, you know, my school at, uni- at university level. Uh, you know, if I would have been just in the classroom, I would have had the people in my building, and that goes a long ways. But I think broadening to a bigger community uh, whether it's on Twitter or whether it's in um, just university halls or through university email, Blackboard, what have you, I think that those different levels of intellectual stimulation and of professional community they really they really do count for a lot. And as challenging and as uh, time consuming as it is to do these programs, I think it's just a it's something that I feel called to do, and and that challenge really. Uh, I, I reach for that, I think. One of the things for me uh, in the PhD program is um, I have a standard of teaching, I guess I would say. I mean, I, there are so many teachers who I admire and that I look to and say, this is great. And, and there's this theory of learning that I operate under as a teacher. And then I, and I kind of run up against a little bit of difference when I'm sitting in a, in a doctoral uh, level college class. And it's kind of, oh, this isn't this isn't quite so much the same level of teaching I'm, I'm expecting in other places. Is that at all the same for you, or is it, or is it completely different? Maybe Kansas and uh, Colorado are way off. By the way, do you observe your, uh, your teachers at the university level and doctoral level classes versus how you view your colleagues you know, in a, in a K-12 school? I think it's, uh, it's the – my professors often have the perception of we are researchers, and you can come into that world with us. Versus, we are teachers um, helping you to come into that world. Hey, yeah, yeah. I definitely think about that quite a bit because I have classes that are both, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, classes that are taught by university researchers, you know, uh, and then ones who are taught by former teachers or foreign, former superintendents and, and principals. And I definitely notice um, a difference between those those styles and between the the kind of dialogues we can have and. I, I just think it changes the way that I, I question, you know, in class, uh, the kinds of things that I ask or, or look for or try and encourage my, you know, fellow students in those classes to to ask because we we need to always bring the the conversation back to, well, what's going to happen in the classroom and how can we be classroom researchers? How can we as you know, as public educators, do do effective research, whether it's action research or scholarly research or or whatever you know informal level we want to do it. But how can we kind of merge those two mindsets and really um, broaden broaden our conversation and our our learning? Do you find yourself keeping a foot in both worlds and not knowing where this is going to end? And it's one of my least favorite questions: is Oh, what are you going to do after this? Yeah, uh, and I think that's whenever we started this call, that's kind of the question that I was uh, positioning in my mind is, you know, what, what are my, my goals? And I spent a lot of time this weekend actually writing about that. 
um, deciding, you know, not deciding, but writing about, do I, uh, how long do I stay in the classroom? Do I, you know, what, what does it look like if I become a principal? What, you know, do I want to become a central office administrator, curriculum planner, you know, uh, or work in a university? Um, and those are, those are really, those are tough questions. I mean, I'm still a, a fairly young teacher. This is my, this is only my fourth year in teaching. And so I, I struggle with those questions a lot and I struggle to balance the, the ways that other people ask me those questions because everyone has their own agenda and their own, um, their own idea of where they would see me. And, um, it, it's, I think that I just need to keep thinking about it and, and keep, studying honestly and, and keep writing more importantly um and that will help me figure it out but i don't i don't have a good answer right now other than i'm i'm just reading as much as i can and, and trying to write as much as i can was that r2d2 in the background that was that was my phone <laughs> excellent me <laughs> now you get to try and claim you're not nerdy um can't do that so i was talking with um i did a recording with Corey sass uh, a couple of days ago another episode. And she was talking about kind of being resistant to the word research. Um, and she said something along the lines of research, uh, implies that there is an answer that we are working toward, uh, that we will get. And once we have it, we will be satisfied with it. Um, but that it, she likes the idea more of inquiry, um, because it is more of an iteration of more questions as you move along the road. Do you see yourself in more the in the research or the inquiry kind of camp of things? Oh gosh, I love the way that she put that an iteration iteration of questions. Um, that's I mean, when you said this research is the search for an answer. Uh, I mean, I do see that as you know we look for answers, but I think using the word inquiry is more powerful to me because it's about being okay in that middle ground where you're still on the hunt and you, uh, you know, you have to keep going back and revising your questions and changing your strategy for questioning. And I, I think that's the powerful place to be, um, as a, as a teacher and as a researcher. Um, and definitely with education, that's how we have to be because we, we play out kind of all the, uh, struggles in society in, in the theater of the school and, and we have to adapt and change the way we ask questions and that's tough i think that's the toughest part we're, we're not really truly objective you know at all times and we're not truly subjective either and it's it's kind of a i think that's what's so slippery about education research is that people don't quite agree on uh, which one it is, or you know, are we a, a soft science? Is there hard, hard science and hard research that can be done, uh, or are we always kind of this weird, gooey, mixed method type area? And well, for for me, I, I think it's interesting because I actually I look at the the quote unquote hard sciences and I say, well, you're able to really just couch your your biases somewhere in your experiment, right? I mean, there's a thing that you're clearly looking for and a way that you think about the world, but is the more empirical you make your data sound, the the more the view it seems like there isn't in an experiment. And I kind of I've come to think of educational research as trying to do to do to put both in, right? To say we are both subjective and we are objective. And that is good and you are too, but you're not ready to admit it yet. It's like coming out of the subjective objective closet in a, in a strange sense. Yeah. I try and figure out where, where I fit in that balance all the time. Before I finished my English degree, I was a chemistry major for two years and I, I did one summer of undergraduate chemistry research. And 
I mean, talk about um, objective, talk about empirical and, and, you know, hard data only. You it, Success and failure is also really uh, clear-cut as well. And, and when you, like I did, get out of a, a giant month-long um, like uh, reaction that you're running with 30 steps to it and you have a 17% yield, you, you mean, you know where you stand with the, you know, what you can say about the success or failure. And I think that that's, we want those kind of numbers in education. We want to be able to say that we have these data points, but we don't, we don't have them in the same way. It's a totally different, different right. process. And I think that's what led me out of, um, that kind of science and, I, I, there was a I studied with Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot last year, and one of my favorite quotations um, from her was, um, "As a sociologist, I look at this, and if it seems strange, I ask myself why, and if it does not seem strange, I ask myself why not." Um, and that's I, ever since hearing that sentence, it was, "Oh, okay, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do." Um, those that's the way I want to question the world. Strangeness. Yeah, and why. You know, and it's it's the because it, we oftentimes think of oh this is strange, but we never think oh why does this seem strange to me right why does this count in my brain and get and get categorized as a strangeness, and then the things that we accept, why is it we accept those things, and why don't they seem strange to us? I think a lot of that kind of questioning comes out of uh, self reflection. I mean, really always being in the mindset of not just inquiring about the world around you, but the, the internal world too. And, you know, why am I the kind of teacher I am? Why do I, I like these things or dislike these things about how my classroom is, is running or how my neighbor teaches and what my principal says. And I think that kind of questioning really lends itself to a, a, a curious mindset where the strange is, is always uh, a part of the, the conversation. Do you all, so kind of, I'm going to tie a couple of things together here, or at least try to, because um, you talked about not being certain necessarily of where you wanted to move um, with part of your degree program and then as a, as a classroom teacher. Where is there a point when you say, oh, I'm not a new teacher anymore, and okay, now I'm ready to, to, to leave the classroom and, and talk about it? Um, and I'll give some background to that question. My sister, Rachel, who is just finished at your alma mater, um, Bears. Yeah, go bears. I asked what kind of bear specifically, and she's like, no, just bears, um, which seems a little, just a little general. Like you, a little general. You guys take all covers. Um, but she was talking about, we had a bit of a disagreement about being able to work in schools, in education, and helping teachers, and not having been in the classroom. Um and and she was pretty resistant to the idea, and she's kind of saying, no, I feel like you shouldn't necessarily need to have taught children to work in schools. Um, and I think to some degree, I agree with that, and she's my sister and brilliant, so I would support her in doing that. Um, but I also think that it's so much easier to get access to the conversation um, and to have your voice heard if you can also say, oh, I was, you know, I was in the classroom for X years, and these are my experiences, and Here's what I think we should do. Where, where do you fall on that? Yeah, I think you you can't count that out at all. You have to be able to 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 be aware of just like you said about what you're aware of. Uh, you know how you think things are strange or not. You have to be aware of where what kind of conversations you you can access uh, wherever you are in your career. And if it's a principal who's only who's only a teacher for uh, for four years or five years versus one who is a teacher for fifteen or twenty, 
then they, those two uh, individuals can have very different uh, types of, of dialogue with you know different different parties. And I think that as long as each of those people are aware of those um, you know those differences, then they can both exist in their own right and, and be be very honest and, and beneficial to whoever they're serving. But it's a it's a tough question because each teacher I think has a different a different view on on things. You know, some would say that it's better that a, a leader get experience as a leader, um, and some would say no, you need to develop as a as a teacher and instructional leader first, and and then uh, I mean some people everyone has their own kind of chain of um, you know of development that they that they perceive as what's right, and and they think about who who they could follow and who they can can listen to in different ways and. I think that it's. Um, I think that there needs to be a diversity of of different types of people in leadership, and it can't be all one or the other. Um, do Do you see that in your own district? Do you see a diversity of that type, or is it a pretty straightforward chain of oh, here's how things turn into who who's in head the head of things? Yeah, I think that there is. I think that there is a diversity. I think there's there's maybe a, a, a larger percentage of. Um. You know the social studies teacher slash coach, good old boy type of principal, and that fits maybe just where I am in general. I mean, in the Midwest, but I think that that's changing dramatically. And now there's more of the former counselor, um, now principal, or um, veteran teacher, now principal. But there's there's definitely a variety, and I I value that. Um, my principal now is taught science for 15 years. And he frequently references that um, whenever he's he's talking with his individually, and he I mean he uses it as a way to level and and to say um, you know this is the way that I taught, this is what I struggled with as a you know a first year teacher versus minutes. you know when I was teaching my tenth year, and he can he can really oh, have yeah. the same conversations with a, a larger range of teachers. Whereas um, I have another principal who who is a counselor for only a, a handful of years and never taught at all. And is now an assistant principal, and and I get along with her with her just great. But a lot of people are uncomfortable with the fact that she was only a counselor, and you know that's such a horrible thing to say. Oh, that word "only" is kind of damaging there, but um, it's just a very different type of um, uh, entry point that she she allows those who who come into contact with her because she was not in the classroom in the same capacity, and I think that. Her her care for for kids just looks a little bit different, and uh, as long as both people can establish that in a relationship, it can work. But we uh, we don't get to talk about that very much in education. I think that's where the trouble is. You know, we might casually number in years, but you know, the teachers across the hall from me don't, and I don't sit around and and chat about that for for an hour like you and I would. Well, yeah, and I wonder what it's like for that assistant principal. To know that that label is there because it is, it would be mind-boggling if she didn't know that this is how she was perceived in this school. Um, how wonderful it would be if she could find kind of an entrance to that conversation, right? To say, oh, I, I understand that these are some things. Let's talk about our theories of caring and our theories of learning and, and how we interact with kids. Because I bet that alignment is the same. Um, but teachers bring such a, um, a bias often to mm-hmm. oh well if you haven't done exactly what i'm doing <laughs> then i've got let, i've got little room in my brain to understand where you're coming from yeah and that's that's such a horrible thing to to hear and and i think that 
the uh, the conversation with those those teachers who are maybe you know the super veterans taught for 25 30 years and kind of have a disparaging view of um you know classroom exiters versus people who who really authentically went into leadership for uh, for different reasons i think that they you have to engage them a lot differently you have to say you know get them to to talk about what they do in their classrooms and lift them up as instructional leaders in order for them to see that Different uh, different kinds of, of people can serve um, based on their their own background, and, and that's that's okay. And they need to practice validating uh, a diverse kind of teacher and a diverse kind of leader too. Talk to a little. Speaking of diversity, um, one that we kind of leave out of the education conversation and that that <laughs> bugs me to no end is the diversity of location, um, rural versus suburban versus urban schools. If you listen to any of the national rhetoric around education, we're predominantly talking about urban schools, and and understandably so, since it is where such a high convers or high um, uh, high number of our students are. Um, but talk a little bit about your district and and what are the differences there about that I might not have seen when I was teaching in Philadelphia. Um, oh yeah, I think I love this this question because. Uh, I mean, so many districts on the, I think, like mine, that are kind of on the fringe of an urban area are are changing so drastically. And it's not just that there's the suburbs and the, you know, the urban core anymore. There's all these weird transitional, uh, you know, community makeups and demographic structures that are in flux all the time. The district I work in, Independence, I would say 30 years ago, uh, and a, a good handful of people in my family graduated from there. Um, it was it was more of a suburb, um, and it's where you know Harry Truman is from there, and it was kind of you know it was outside of Kansas City, you know, and there was a kind of a clear separation. And I'm not a, a scholar on the you know the area or anything, but and now it's it's got one foot in downtown, and we've annexed five schools from the the Kansas City Missouri School District. Uh, within the last five years, uh, one high school and and uh, a middle school and a couple elementaries. You've annexed but, schools from another district. Yeah, it was a huge, a huge deal. There, there were uh, well, we had the uh, superintendent uh, Covington uh, who left uh, quite swiftly and unceremoniously um, last year. Not us, but KCMO, um, and he had closed twenty six schools. It was on all the you know national news what he did to. Uh, I mean, really cut out half-empty buildings and things, and and then he he up and left. But right right before that time, uh, some of those type of schools that he was closing were brought into my district. You know, and I wasn't there at the time, but the, it was just seen as the, they were on the eastern boundary, and and uh, Independence is is east of KC and north a little bit, and they just the community and the two districts thought that it would be. Uh, well, I mean, more our district than KCMO. I don't think they wanted to as much, but they just saw it as a better way to serve those those communities, and the communities met on it and, and voted and said that they would uh, they would prefer that. And I was there's that. a district I, I want to say it's in Tennessee that has done a similar thing, but in more in the in the effort of funding, and that they've come together and, and are kind of splitting the difference. Um, but a realization of the people who live in the in the more affluent suburbs of oh if we don't help save this district that is more urban, um, it is going to have detrimental effects for us economically. Uh, I think is the main driver there. Clearly, there are other like, cultural um, and social 
negative consequences as well. But it's really interesting to see how some people are able to think more deeply about those issues and, and others are kind of, no, no, this is our district and, and this is yours and you stay there and we stay here. And, and there's a connectivity that's implied but not often observed, which is interesting. Yeah, it's a t- and it's a tough question because we are, I mean, constantly redefining what the boundaries are in our city and there's such high mobility with all of the, I mean, the kids kind of in the, in and between those boundaries. And I mean, the schools need to reflect that and it's, it's not always um, as visible to our uh, and political leaders how, how the schools should take place and, and serve our, the changing communities, but it's uh my district I would say is is more urban than than suburban or rural, but we definitely have a good makeup of uh of all three of those categories. I'd say that I mean it's maybe forty five to fifty percent what I would say qualifies as in you know people who live in you know urban areas and and then there's a smaller proportion of folks who live in kind of a pseudo rural area and and then a good number of um of suburban demographic. Um, and I came from, from the suburbs way out a little bit farther east in Blue Springs, Missouri. And, and I've taught in downtown Kansas city and I've taught here in the middle and, you know, my wife and I own a dance studio in, in rural Missouri. It's a, you know, 45 minutes South and all the kids there in FHA and, or FFA and, um, <laughs> own horses and land. And I really think that we, we can, we become in danger of isolating ourselves if we don't think about how uh, each of those different communities, uh, how their schools work. Again, it comes back to that question of communication and, and keeping those open. Um, and it's, it seems more of a, okay, we need, to, we need to build these systems within schools, definitely, because that's where the most immediate impact is on, on children. But if you think of those schools as places that are fostering more of a democratic ideal, then the the communication across lines of schools and across lines of districts becomes even more important, right? I mean, otherwise, you, you could have somebody potentially who teach you, who, who goes to school in Kansas City, um, in downtown, who has no idea what the FFA or the FHA are. Um, yeah. And, 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 but it, you move a couple miles the other direction, and you've got a kid who says, no, this is, this is going to be the thing that I put all of my heart and soul into while I'm at school. And those conversations are, seem like they should have happened long ago, but still seem like they're <laughs> a little bit distant for us. Yeah, they are. I, I can think of one, um, one thing that I did when I taught downtown is I partnered with a teacher from, from Pleasant Hill out farther south in the more rural areas, and we, we blogged and read To Kill a Mockingbird together. Um, and the kids, aside from talking about Jem and Scout, would talk about, you know, do you ride tractors to work or to school <laughs> or, or, or horse? Right. And, they would, and then the, you know, kids from Pleasant Hill would, you know, ask, ask us, you know, downtown, you know, do you live in the ghetto? <laughs> and the, the teachers, you know, the, my friend and I would, would try and coordinate these conversations and, and try and mediate you know, where these kids were, um, you know, unfairly highlighting their own stereotypes of themselves because they kind of they enjoyed playing them up in a way you know right so like you don't you know have a tractor quit you know quit saying that and <laughs> it's the joy of being the exotic other exactly and they they both really 
liked exchanging those kind of jokes and jabs. Uh, and it was never, and maybe you wouldn't expect this, but it was never ever mean spirited or um, you know, distancing. It was always this kind of jovial. Um, you know, they they really loved that they could look at someone on the other side and and kind of had fun um, figuring them out. It's, and it's so interesting as well that it. I mean, that is a. I'm from Illinois, so I know this pretty well. Um, it's a part of the country that if you are on the coast, you look at it and say, oh, they're all this kind of person, right? Um, but that even within such a small geographic area, you can have such diversity of, of, of culture um, is unexpected, I think, to most people, sadly. Yeah, and I don't know that I haven't lived on, on either coast uh, at all. Um, I've spent my whole life in the Midwest and it's kind of strange to me to think about that. And I don't know when, when I was in whatever grade, I realized that we were referred to as flyover country, but right. <laughs> you do stop and think about that. Like, Oh yeah, you know, people probably do kind of forget about us and Oh yeah, no one ever talks about Kansas city as the, you know, the Midwest. People talk about Ohio being in the Midwest. And I, first time I heard that my, you know, brain flipped inside my head and I thought that's not the middle of the country. <laughs> Midwest is more of a honorary term, I think, in that moment. <laughs> um, so it, I'm close to the end of my cup of coffee. Um, so what I'd like to ask you is what is it you're watching and listening to and reading right now that, that you could recommend to folks? Let's see. Um, I just went through and bought a couple new magazines. I really am – I'm always in between reading more magazines and reading more nonfiction stuff and shifting that back and forth with what novels I'm reading. Um, I'm finishing The Great Gatsby, hopefully before the the movie comes out, which I'm very excited about that. And this is the first time I'll have reread it since high school. And, and you know, it's a totally new experience for me. And I'm <laughs> That's shocking, right? <laughs> the difference between you choosing to read it and it being assigned? Oh, and I loved it in high school. It was, it was probably my favorite book in high school uh, that I that was assigned to me to be read. But mm -hmm. um, boy, it's so different now, and it's su such a more refreshing and, and adult experience. Uh, and yeah, again, imagine that you know years later, <laughs> <laughs> deep and, and meaningful. Um, and picking stuff up off the uh, magazine rack, I just picked up um, an Utney reader. Have you ever? Come oh yeah. I, I it was new to me, and I just saw a picture of uh, Don Draper on the latest cover, and it, there's a, a series about uh, masculinity and manliness, and what it means to be a, uh, a to, to be a man and to seek help and kind of uh, ferret out our you know societal understandings of the you know the John Wayne type of personality, and so lots of fascinating stuff about kind of gender nice juxtaposition between uh, that and reading Gatsby again. Oh yeah, and I've just started to that 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 came into mind thinking about um, you know Tom and and how he compares to, to to Jay Gatsby and there's always good connections like that, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, I, I think as an English teacher, you probably see them a little bit more clearly than, or more often, not necessarily clearly than than most other people do. I don't know that I see them more clearly, but I, I definitely look for them. You know, there's always um, a connection to be made, and whether it's weak or strong is is up to, uh, I think, the people I'm talking to at that given moment. But <laughs> one of my favorite activities when I was in the classroom was I'd, I'd use um, the Lady Gaga song "Just Dance," 
Um, and it was when I was trying to, uh, get kids to access critical theory and just different literary lenses. And so I said, okay, so my thesis is this. And then I would put the lyrics up on the board and we would just line by line go through them. And I'd say, look, this is, look how she's just advocating the further subjugation of women and blah, 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 blah. And then we would get done and invariably the students would come up to me at the end of the class and do you hear every song that way? <laughs> and I was I do. I do hear every song that way. And I bet you can also uh, balance that with um, then enjoying those kinds of songs, too. You have the critical lens and you have the, you know, just the pure enjoyment right. of, of some of that, too. You know, pop music as, as a culture and pop music as just uh, something that's on the radio to tap your fingers to. Right. So the next question was, was also, you know, oh, so you must hate this song. Said, oh, no, I love this song. It's fantastic. It's got such energy. They just couldn't at that moment take care of that cognitive dissonance. <laughs> but you, you made an argument against it. Um, <laughs> and holding those two ideas was broke, broke their brain and mine sometimes. I love that. I love that moment where you get the kids to to see that kind of um, you know academic positioning where you can hold those two ideas in your hand and that without accepting or rejecting one. And that, that what is that? Is that a Socrates quote or um, I don't know? I think it's that, somewhere yeah. in Gatsby, right? Isn't that toward the beginning of Gatsby? Isn't Nick talking about cognitive dissonance? I yeah, he probably is. There's it's definitely implied that he. Uh, is going through that kind of evaluation of those different those different types, and uh, boy, do we need to talk about that more in school with kids. Well, do that do that tomorrow when you get back into the classroom. <laughs> I'll bring that up first thing with my sixth grade. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. <laughs> I know you're probably all concrete thinkers right now, but we're going to talk about this. Lady Gaga first. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, sir. I'm at the end of my cup of coffee, which is traditionally where this podcast ends. Um, Thank you so much. If people want to follow you online, and I think that they should, because you say some things that are interesting, how can they find you? They can find me, and um, I, I hope that I am I'm pushing myself to, to say and write more recently, because as I've started this program, you can imagine I've been uh, tweeting less and, and blogging less. Yes. <laughs> it's all for assignments and papers, and uh, I sure want to be blogging, but um, it takes a lot of care and attention to make it, um, put it out there. But you can find me on uh, Twitter at Steve, at Steve J. Moore and um, online at stevejmore.com is where my blog and some of my Digo links go to. I try and annotate um, and push out some Digo links every now and then just to broadcast my brain and what I'm trying to digest. And that's where I am. Awesome. And, and I should recommend, I don't know if you use a Kindle or have an iPad, but the Kindle app is pretty great for being able to push out uh, quotations from what you're reading out to Twitter or Facebook. Um, I, I'll follow yours all the time, Zach, and I love to pick those up. Um, I share highlights on my Kindle. I've got the Kindle Touch, uh, but I don't get to add, I can't type notes very quickly on uh -huh. the Touch. And right. Mostly this gets bookmarked for myself, and uh, I use the, you know, the Kindle app on, you know, on the web. But yeah, that's, I love following yours, your bookmarks on there. I, it's, I think of it as a good way to keep my number of followers down because all of a sudden <laughs> there's a deluge of tweets of, this is in interesting stuff about integration. <laughs> oh, that's not why I followed you. Leave me alone. And keep my number of followers down. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, sir. Thank you very much. I really appreciated uh, getting a chance to talk to you. Um, we will be in touch. Good luck 
balancing student and teacher roles in the rest of the semester. Thanks for calling, and, and it was so good to talk to you too, Zach. I hope we can get together here in KC when you're when you're uh, flying over yourself or, or driving. That is my plan. All right, well, enjoy the rest of your Monday, and I'm going to go uh, warm up my coffee since it's cold now. Good luck on that. Thank you for listening to Learning Grounds. I'm Zach Chase. Our intro and outro music comes from New Dance Boy's Mission, and it's called Intro. It's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. Learning Grounds is also licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. I dare you to say it three times fast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.